It took more than five years, but now the American Federation of Government Employees and the Veterans Affairs Department have a tentative new master collective bargaining agreement. For details, we turn to the first executive vice president of AFGE's National VA Council, Mary Jean Burke. MJ, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. So this must feel like a big red-letter day. I mean, this is one of your biggest (laughs) bargaining units, correct? Yeah, over uh, 280,000 people fall under this contract. It's probably the, one of the largest contracts in America. I was going to say that's bigger than like Ford Motor Company has for this <laughs> unionized employee. Yeah, if all those people were dues paying, that'd be great. But uh, they fall under the contract regardless. Got it. Now, this agreement would start when and what would it replace? Because you had a couple of overlapping old agreements and pieces kind of pieced together until now. Well, basically what happened was after the Trump administration, we entered into what we call a global settlement period where we had a limited reopener. So we were continuing on with the 2011 master agreement with a tentative reopener of 12 articles, basically. And then the parties kind of slogged through those articles and we weren't having a lot of progress. And then I think through the efforts of both parties, the agents he kind of just wanted to boil it down to say, hey, we've got hiring problems. Can you just focus on that? And we come to an agreement that we just kind of made changes in one article and the rest of the articles rolled over basically from the 2011 agreement. So good deal for both sides. And we're moving forward. Now, does the new agreement then look a lot like the 2011 agreement that kind of expired and then you had some disagreements over some important clauses in the Trump administration, and there was an arbitration council that looked at those and sided with the administration. That's all out the window then now, correct? Well, basically, not exactly. So what we call is uh, every contract has a duration, and as they come up on that duration, they decide whether they want to reopen the contracts partially or all of it. And then we also have the decision whether we want to open the contract or not. Generally, unions don't open contracts unless they have a really bad contract. This is a good contract. The 2011 contract has some good provisions in it. So basically, when they decided to do this limited reopener, we went through that since the Biden administration. And so we weren't moving quickly through that. So they just, the parties came together and accelerated, just focused on the one article dealing with what we call merit promotion, which helps the agency hire folks. And we need more folks considerably, Tom. So I think it was a good deal for both people and it got us through our disputes. And that's what's going out for ratification, everything except that article 23 merit promotion. Got it. And so what should members know that's good in this contract generally, do you think? Generally, I think everything that is already there except 23. Now, the 23 basically has a shortened duration for vacancy announcements that people can apply for. So that's a change when it comes to area of consideration. If they want to go outside, obviously, they can go outside. People can apply like they're an external applicant as well. Then you get veterans preference. But those are the changes. The agency really was looking to ramp up acceleration, as you know, probably by doing interviews with other places or federal agencies. You know, time to hire is very big with OPM and the federal workers just generally. And so they thought that would get them to their goal. And we need a lot more people and our internal 
president say, bring them on. We need more people. <laughs> we, you know, we're looking at an older retirement age and if we want to be around, we have to make some changes as well. Right. So this will bring in people more easily. Yeah, exactly. All right. We're speaking with MJ Burke. She's first executive vice president of the National VA Council of the American Federation of Government Employees. What happens now? I mean, this is an agreement between the negotiators and VA leadership. Got to be ratified, right? Right. It's an accelerated ratification process or what I know of an accelerated. So in the next 60 days, we have 60 days basically for that to go out to them to hold their special meetings, to send in the votes of their members on this article. But for the most part, the 2011 agreement rolls over. And so that was like the huge caveat, basically, for enticing us to ratify. So I'm anticipating positive outcomes for this. This is a good contract, generally speaking. You know, there are vestiges in that contract that's applicable to all workers and it still allows local tailoring for a local union to have hours of work if they want to have, define seniority if they want to have it locally different from one place to another. And so that's really gives local presidents a maneuverability as well. And so that's what we're looking forward to. And we think we're not going to have a problem with ratification. And VA employees would be as other federal employees in terms of probation periods, procedures for discipline and dismissal that the Trump administration sought to change. Yeah, I think for the most part, I think the agency, you know, we have a different just to get down on the weeds a little bit with you, Tom, on that one. But, you know, for nurses and doctors, they have a little longer probationary period than what we call Title V and wage grade, generally speaking. And I think you're referencing what we call 714 actions, not 713 actions, which is, you know, the accountability piece for supervisors and managers. The 714 actions that you were referencing, or I think you were referencing from the Trump administration, you know, the administration has taken the view that they thought they didn't need it. There was some litigation around, you know, making sure that they followed the collective bargaining agreement regarding what we call PIPs, performance improvement plans, and not just firing people at will uh, unless, you know, like it's egregious kind of behavior. So like due process rights kind of thing. It'll feel like Title V to Title V employees and Title 38 to yes. Title 38 employees. Right, exactly. So it follows the same legal standards and legal burdens as it did prior to the Trump administration. And what do you think took so long for the Biden administration to come around? Because, you know, I mean, the Trump administration had its ways, (laughs) but you would have thought that, gosh, Dennis McDonough would have gotten this done in the first month. I think if you're just asking me, I think some of it is mentality, even though they talk a lot of we're pro-labor kind of thing when you get across from agency officials in the HR realm and the attorneys of the HR realm. They don't think really operationally as much, I think, or that's my perspective. And I think sometimes when you get operations to operations, I think things go through. And when you enter a lot of legal realms, things get gunked up a lot longer. So we got it done, though. And so... (laughs) I'm pleased and kind of surprised we had some logger jams there, but we made it through it. (laughs) Yeah, I guess everybody's pro-labor until they become management. 
<laughs> exactly, Tom. Exactly. I don't know what you are if you're a worker or a management person. Well, or I've been both in my career. <laughs> At the moment, I am a card-carrying union dues-paying member myself. So. Oh, good. See, I communication worker, I assume. No, actually, SAG-AFTRA. Oh, great. Oh, I like great. to tell okay. people Brad Pitt and I are in the same union. Oh, okay. <laughs> Only he's if better may- looking. <laughs> And probably makes just a tad more money. Than just you a tad are. more money. Well, listen, good luck on that ratification. Okay, thanks, Tom. MJ Burke is first executive vice president of the National VA Council of the American Federation of Government Employees. Good having you with us. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Check off the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. 
it's an amazing story. And two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept 
me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.